Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 77. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, firstly, as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. They've been such great supporters of the podcast, uh, and I really couldn't do this without them. And to me, it's such a pleasure to get out there, which I have done since our last uh, update. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I want to listen to where you might be today listening to this. I tend to listen to podcasts while I'm running, but you might be in a car or at the gym. Uh, or maybe sitting at your desk uh, working. But wherever you are, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And uh, you can always tell your snow-loving friends about us too. Very easy to share, particularly if you're listening to us on Spotify. Now, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Olympics, summer and winter, uh, skiing in Northern Ireland. Uh, But firstly, I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'm delighted to introduce Olympian Emily Sarsfield Power for her second appearance (laughs) on the show. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. And joining us again, I think for the third time, is World Cup winning telemarker Jasmine Taylor. Hi, Jasmine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'd like to start with the first question I always ask my guests, which is when did you ski or snowboard last? Possibly it hasn't changed since you were on the show last, but let's find out. Uh, Emily, when do, do you ski last? Um, now, this is the longest period I've ever gone without my skis on my feet. So it's really bizarre. The last time I skied was Easter 2020. So that's over a year since I skied. And I think that's the longest in my whole entire life because I think I had skis on when I was about one and a half. So, right, okay. You <laughs> so did, I weird. think you maybe you did well to get out there in, in Easter 2020. Oh, no, no, sorry. That's, yep. Then it's 19 then. Right. Okay. Even worse than that. Where was that? In Maribel. In Maribel. And what about you, Jasmine? I think because you spent some time in the Alps and I know that you ski last winter, but when was it you did actually ski last? Well, technically, just the other day. Um, <laughs> really? Excellent. At, yeah, at Hemel Hempstead. Apart from that, I was skiing last in April, so it's quite a while. I still think skiing in Hemel Hempstead counts. It's on It's on snow. When I interviewed Ian Brown a while ago, who's the, uh, the general manager there, he uh, claimed Hemel Hempstead. Um, so that definitely still counts. When you skied um, back in April, where was that? Uh, so I spent the season in Les Ouches in the Chamonix Valley, even though the resorts were not open, we'd have um, like a kind of special access for training. Um, so I was able to train, but um, properly skiing, it was probably Zermatt at the end of the season for a Basie course. So right. that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, nice place to go. Um, mm. Listeners to the last episode will know that I went out to Zermatt to try and get some skiing in and happened to turn up on one of the days when the uh, when the list was closed. This was back in July. I you know, really hoped I was going to get an extra ski day in, but it, it didn't happen. Uh, but talking of skiing, we've covered skiing in the UK uh, over the last year because lots of our listeners have been forced to uh, uh, you know not been able to go overseas and skied in the UK and we've had reports from Wales Scotland and England uh, in previous episodes but did you know that you can ski in Northern Ireland as well uh, earlier this week I spoke to Mark Thompson and David Hogg who told me about their uh, their experiences Okay, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Thompson and uh, and David Hogg uh, just now. How are you guys? Keeping well, yep. Yeah, doing well. Excellent. Well, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is, uh, you know, we've covered quite a lot of skiing around the UK in this, uh, you know, horrible winter we had last winter where people didn't get to go away. And we've had reports from skiing in Wales and from skiing in Scotland and also from skiing in England. 
But you contacted me, Mark, because you've been skiing in Northern Ireland, which I thought was uh, great. Can't be much skiing going on over there. Whereabouts did you go, Mark? Um, so we headed out to uh, the Moore Mountain Range, it's called, just near Newcastle there, kind of south end of Northern Ireland. Okay, so, yes, I think I, I did look it up on the map. It's quite near the border with the Republic of Ireland, sort of near to Dundalk, is that right? Yeah, near enough around there, yeah. So okay. We, we were both getting a bit frustrated, given the current <laughs> global climate with COVID and everything, no skiing for ourselves. So kind of thought we saw... We got a good bit of snow for kind of Northern Ireland, and we thought, goodness, there might be enough here to to hike up and see what what we can ski. Great. And when when was that then? This was in around Christmas there, kind of two weeks after Christmas. I think okay. we got most of our snow. Right. Okay. And so it was all. There's no lifts there. You have to uh, you have to hike yourself, no. or were you ski touring possibly? No, there wasn't even enough snow to ski tour ski tour up. It was get the skis on the back and. An hour and 45 hike up. Okay, an hour and 45 hike up. I think I had a look and it. it looks like it's about 800 metres, 850 metres yeah, around yeah, there. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, around there, yeah. So what's the drop that you get? What do you earn uh, for your walking then? There is one kind of, well, it was actually Comoda, one of the mountains in, in the morns we were skiing. So Comoda's just under 850, maybe 840. So we were probably getting around 300 metres there. How many times did you walk back up then? probably about six times yeah it was <laughs> you weren't getting a good a lot of bang for your buck like you weren't getting like, too many too many vertical meters yeah but in, you're but... getting some skiing in which yeah is, we're getting which some is fantastic that's really good and david you also skied so as well as skiing down in the south in the Mourne mountains you also kind of went a little bit further afield as well where was the other spot that you went to yeah that's right so we went to uh Errigal mountain and donegal so that actually is over the border um and ireland but um, it's kind of a wee bit more in the north in the Moor Mountains. I would say Aragle was probably better. Um, it was a longer run. It was kind of a shoot. And we actually ended up building a kicker at the top of it. Did you? Um, actually, yeah. I think I saw that because you sent me um, some TikTok uh, links, which I'll include in the show notes of you yeah. guys uh, on, your, on your kicker there. It looked quite fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mark there, he's a bit more adventurous than me. He was uh, throwing the odd backflip through us. Um, and he landed at you as well. Credit to him. So... Yeah, it was really fun, um, and it was probably, again, a couple of hundred metres, so it was worth the hike up. Yeah, good good work, uh, uh, Mark. What, what what was the, uh, how long was the, the hike up for uh, for that mountain? Ergil, not as long, probably about an hour, an hour up it. Okay, um, and similar descent? Similar descent, probably probably about 200, 300 metres, yeah, as much. Okay. But I'm thinking if you made a, a kicker and you were actually doing backflips, the snow was a bit better on that occasion. Yeah, the snow was probably better. Um, the snow packed was probably the hardest thing we, we encountered up there. We actually, because you, you can't really build or form a jump, so we kind of improvised. We made one of our mates hike up with a skateboard ramp. So we kind of <laughs> got, that, got that into the snow. Hold on, and... hold on. So you walked up with your skis. And we this had guy had a skateboard back. ramp over his back and he had to haul that up. <laughs> yeah, good good meet he was, Ethan Hilly's called. Um, right. The best bit about it all was, Ian, that uh, Ethan didn't even get to ski. It's um, good to have friends uh, like that. Yeah, and so where do you normally do your skiing then? Normally, well, we're uh, just back. We, we spent a year in Canada there, um, over in Banff. 
So we were out doing our, we had a gap year out there and just skied for the full season. Um, Sunshine Village is our resort. So brilliant. And what we, what were you doing out there, David? So we worked in the lifts, um, and our job contract was kind of interesting. We had two hours a day skiing. So you went up in the morning. Usually, if it was a powder day, I would have took first break in the morning, and you would have got all the fresh powder before all the guests come up to the resort. So it was really, really good. You were getting first run down the mountain. Um, and then ever since, that was two years ago, so I've been going out every year. So I went out last year to Lake Louise, kicking a horse in sunshine. And then if we can get away this winter, I plan to head out to DC, maybe Revelstoke or somewhere. But kind of fingers crossed at the minute we may have to settle for very go in the mornings again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? I mean, it's, you know, it's very dynamic. We just talked about... Well, we're going to be talking about that later in the podcast uh, with Katie from Battleface. But I'm, I'm, I'm. If you listen to the podcast, you know I'm ever optimistic, and suffer from optimism bias. I'm confident we'll all get uh, uh, skiing, you know, hopefully uh, this winter. And just while we're chatting, what's the ski season, ski scene like in Northern Ireland? Are there are there many skiers? The ski, yeah, there's a lot of keen skiers that would kind of go out every year. Um, I know a couple of guys that have done seasons, uh, quite a few actually. Uh, some in Whistler, a guy Josh Anderson, a good friend of ours, he was out in Whistler. Um, so yeah, there's quite there's quite a big holiday ski season. It wouldn't wouldn't be maybe as hardcore. As... I, I guess you're relying on if you're looking to ski in Europe or, or even you know in Canada, you need to have flights that are connecting from Belfast, right, to make that work. Yeah, you can you can fly out of Dublin. Yeah, it's right. It's a bit more effort probably, but. You know, if you want to ski, you can ski. And, you know, thanks for sharing that with us. And I think we've now completed the set of um, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland for domestic uh, skiing. And, you know, do uh, get in contact again if you're, if you're skiing in Northern Ireland because I'd love to hear more about it. Thanks yep. very much, Mark. Thanks, David. Absolutely. Thank you. And just after recording this episode, we got this update from Alex Irwin, friend of the show, who'd been out to teen at the end of July and updates us on the conditions out there. Hi Ian, Alex from 150 Days of Winter with a snow report from the Grandmont Glacier in Teen. The glacier officially closed for skiers at the start of August, but it managed to get up there on the 29th for what was the last sunny day on the slopes, and boy, was it worth it. Blue skies, endless views, and more importantly, a great snowpack. Absolute nirvana for summer skiing. From the base of the Grandmont gondola, Everything looked a little grey and worn. However, when you started skiing down, you realised everything was all right. I bumped into Phil Smith from Snowworks Ski Courses, who very kindly let us have a run down their slalom course, and it was next to perfect. Absolutely amazing. There were signs of plenty of snow farming with blocks of covered snow at the bottom of nearly all the slopes, showing teens' commitment to snow management, even on the glacier. It was just a shame to leave at 11.30, but as all good things have to come to an end. Seeing the conditions, I can't wait until October for the glacier's autumn reopening. Luckily, Teen also has great summer activities to do around the lake, and from great mountain biking and walking tracks to a crazy water slide into the lake. If you want to see how we got on, please check out my YouTube channel, 150 Days of Winter. So until October... Ciao.
Uh, also, uh, that was that was great to listen to about skiing in Northern Ireland. Uh, so we've covered uh, all the uh, countries of uh, of the United Kingdom now. Uh, regular listeners will also recall that I spoke to Andy Meldrum from Glencoe about their midsummer ski event. And he also told us a little bit more about how he came to buy the resort and how they got on last winter. You know, I introduced you as being the owner of uh, Glencoe. But uh, from our little chat in the Blue Room earlier, I think I'm right in saying that you... The idea of becoming the owner came about during one of these midsummer skis. Is that right? Yeah, it wasn't actually midsummer. We we were up 13 years ago. We were skiing in the last day of the season. And I came down the chairlift, said to the lift operator at the bottom, chap with the name of Chizzy, uh, we'll see you uh, midsummer as normal. And he said, oh, you might not because the business is up for sale. And that was the first we had heard of that. And at that point in time, we were really just curious to, to know what a ski area what it actually sold for, how much it was worth, and uh, mm-hmm. things then, uh, yeah, they just they just developed from there. <laughs> we put in an inquiry just out of curiosity, and then uh, realised that it was it was probably you know something that was was possible. And I've always been you know interested in snow, interested in uh, you know in the industry. I used to work as a ski instructor a, a long time ago uh, before getting a a proper job. Uh, so. Yeah, and that, that's how it came about. And, you know, six months after that initial interaction at the bottom of the lift, we, uh, yeah, in, in late November, we got we got involved, got the ski area, and we, you know, it was a really difficult period because I think the previous five years, the business had, had really struggled. So we, we came in with, uh, you know, a ski area that had a lot of challenges, but luckily we had a good good first two seasons got on our feet and uh and since then it's been uh it's been pretty good with its with its challenges especially the last two seasons with uh you know with covid and restrictions yeah well i mean you mentioned that i have to ask you about that i mean um you know thinking about com- comparison with a more normal season you know did you did you get any revenues in at all were you able to open in any realistic way i think at times it was open for domestic market but at other times not yeah, we we actually opened on the fifth of December on on man-made snow for uh, for sledging and 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 beginners. We had enough snow that we had made, and then just between Christmas and New Year, we opened for skiers and sledgers. We were controlling, you know, skier numbers. We had online ticketing that we just put in place, controlled the numbers, local people only, and it all seemed to be going, you know, very well uh, until the the fourth of uh, January, and we were told that. Yeah, scheme wasn't happening this year, and we we kept expecting it to reopen and reopen and reopen, and it eventually reopened just as our uh, as our lift up tracks broken. We had not enough snow open, so uh, we really didn't get a season out. I think we had just under a thousand skier days this year. Uh, you can listen to the rest of that interview with uh, with Andy Meldrum from Glencoe in episode 75. And talking about our old episodes, we've got over 100 to catch up on. So if you're a new listener, have a look on the website, theskipodcast.com. Look for a tag or category that takes your interest, uh, and there's plenty there. Now, quick question for you two, um, Emily and Jasmine. Have either of you ever skied in Northern Ireland? I have never skied in Northern Ireland. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure many people have. What about Scotland? Have you skied there? Yes, I did have a horizontal wind situation one time in <laughs> Scotland, um, but also actually had a really good ski day there as well. We used to have a few competitions up there as well, which was great. Okay, and Jasmine, have you skied in Scotland? Yeah, I have actually, um, just for a week when I was a teenager, and then I went in July and I hiked up 
and ski a patch of snow <laughs> with some friends so technically yeah. yes but it was again it was about 100 meters worth of skiing excellent in in july of this year no it was a few years ago it's probably okay. yeah i don't know when yeah, well, very similar to the midsummer experience that um, Andy was talking about at Glencoe then, where, you know, depending on the snow, they would open up the lift or if there isn't a lift, you have to hike up there. And this year, 2021, they had about a 200 metre, 300 metre stretch of snow and mm. they had 30 people turn up for it. You can catch up with that one, Jasmine, in episode 75. That's lovely to hear about skiing. But um, when will we get uh, on the snow or indeed anywhere overseas next? Uh, the situation is always very dynamic. We had some good news this week uh, with France coming off that stupid Amber Plus list. But to talk through it all, I, I spoke to Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance earlier this week to talk through the current situation. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Like you, um, I've been away since we last spoke. I think you went to Mallorca, didn't you? How was that trip? That's right. Yeah, I spent just over two and a half weeks in in Mallorca, just outside of Parma. It was absolutely fantastic. Really amazing to get away. Excellent. I'm delighted to hear that uh, and that you managed to get away. Um, obviously, everything changes on a regular basis, but there have been some more changes for travel in the last week or so that certainly look a bit more positive. I guess the most important one probably for British people is the fact that uh, France has come off the Amber Plus list, which is a very stupid idea. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but it does mean that fully vaccinated people can come back to the UK without quarantining. Uh, there have been a whole bunch of countries added to uh, the green list, which affects people listening to this show, listeners. I mean, Austria, very key alpine destination is on there. Uh, Slovenia and Slovakia are both ski places as well, as well as Romania. Now, we're a long way away from the ski season. Norway's on there as well and Germany. So all of those places, uh, again, no quarantine required and vaccinated and non-vaccinated people can travel uh, back and forth. Um, all of that was too late for me for my trip to France. I did. I had to uh, quarantine and take a bunch of tests. Uh, and the cost of the tests is pretty significant. I think I worked it out that for mine with a couple of lateral flows, because when I went the first time, you needed to have it going into um, Switzerland. Uh, and then one coming back, um, a day two and eight test, and a day five test to release, all in all cost me a bit over £300. Now, I could kind of afford to do that because partly Switzerland Tourism supported my trip, um, and partly because we haven't been away. But to take a family away, you know, four times £300... That is a huge amount to add on to the cost of travel. Uh, you know, how did how did you do it for your trip to Mallorca? And and I think you've also got some some survey uh, info about what people think about the cost of tests. Absolutely, yeah. You know, even with quarantine scrapped um, for fully vaccinated arrivals from Europe and the USA, the cost of testing remains completely prohibitive. Last week, as, as you rightly said, I, I came back from Mallorca and um, had a fantastic time out there. But the cost of testing, it, it came for the three of us, myself and my two children to go out there, came to just under £600 on top of the travel costs, um, which is obviously a huge financial burden for us. You know, and we did we did do a survey um, and the poll actually revealed that Brits are prepared to pay an average of £61 per person. Um, for all required tests to travel internationally. And that is just not the case right now. 
I mean, you're looking at sort of, as you say, you know, um, it costs you 300 pounds. It's 600 pounds for, for me and a family of four it could, could add up to a thousand pounds. So can I ask a question about that? Now, you're saying people were in the survey that Battleface did. They asked people how much they'd be prepared to pay. Is that how it worked? And gave them brackets and worked out that 61 pounds was the average. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, that is interesting. I mean, 61 pounds compared to the 300 or so. I didn't have to spend that much. Um, I could have, I looked around, I could have done it for less, but I chose a couple of uh, options. Specifically, I chose um, for my day two, eight and eight tests, I chose a supplier where I got to leave the house to go and take my test down there. Because, you know, you're allowed to leave the house to go and take your test down and drop it off. So I turned that into, you know, a jog down there and a jog back. And there were probably cheaper ones. And for my day five test to release one, um, I also went up to uh, Gatwick because they got a uh, testing center up there, which is amazing, I have to say. Uh, it's just they've taken over one of the long term car parks, which isn't being used anymore. And it's massive, this place and so efficient. I did pick that one because they said they were going to give the results back in 24 hours. It ended up being slightly more than 24 hours, but, um, you know, there were cheaper options around. I think in the paper today, you know, there's a number of MPs uh, and various people who are lobbying the government to try and persuade them to replace uh, that PCR test on the return uh, to the or PCR tests uh, when you come back into the UK with lateral flow tests so that yeah. day two and possibly day eight which would bring the cost down absolutely well as you say um this week the government's made, made another announcement with regards to um the traffic light system yeah they've just set now announced that they would recommend that all travelers coming back from Spain should uh, you know advise to use a PCR test as their pre-departure test but um, looking at the costs of both tests, an antigen test in Mallorca costs 30 euro, uh, euros and it's been capped at that price, whereas a PCR test costs over 100 euros. So quite frankly, people are not going to opt for, for doing a PCR test. They're going to go with the, the lateral flow, the antigen test, because it's much, much cheaper. Yeah, I mean, I saw exactly the same thing in Chamonix. You can go into a pharmacy and get a antigen test for 29 euros uh, done there and then so there's a significant uh, saving for having it that way around and that would be great i did also notice that grant shapps uh, the transport secretary said this week or maybe even yesterday that he thought this whole system would continue uh, through until the autumn but to be honest with you, I kind of feel it's bound to end up going into the winter uh, as well. You know, we talk about skiing here and how it's going to affect us. Do you think we'll still be taking tests to travel um, as well as proof of vaccination come the winter? Um, I'm sure we will. Yeah, I really I really think we will be because, um, you know, there's, there's you know, there's a lot of um, new variants coming in, into play and um, they're trying to keep a keep a real hands on that. That's why they're advising um, a use of a PCR test before coming back to the UK now, because they're, you know, you can they're much clearer tests and they can really detect um, and keep abreast of the latest data and, and variants. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you call me cynical, but there's been a huge amount of money being earned out of these uh, uh, tests. And equally today, there was an article uh, uh, about uh, saying that I think it was only 5% of positive PCR tests have been sequenced. So this whole argument about, you know, yeah. looking out for variants and things like that doesn't stack up if that worker, uh, you know, isn't being done. That's the whole, whole reason for testing people in theory when they come back into the UK. And so, you know, just let's um, finish with FCO advice. I mean, yeah. the... the, the one of the points about battle-faced travel insurance, why we've been talking to you and why I came across it in the first place is that, you know, if the FCO advise against non-essential travel, then you'll still be covered under battle-faced travel insurance. Have those rules changed at all? No, battle-faced policies um, are available and accessible and cover destinations worldwide, regardless of the traffic light colour and, and also include those under FCDO advisories. So if you are... Um, you know, you're out in Spain and that changes traffic light colour, you will still be absolutely covered with, with our policies. Well, that's great. I'm delighted to hear that you had a, a good trip. Will you be going overseas again this summer or is two and a half weeks in Mallorca enough for you? <laughs> I'm hoping to get to the States soon, actually. So, right, okay. Uh, I think Battleface are based over there or something, is that right? Yeah, yeah. so I'm hoping to go over um, in the coming weeks. Uh, just okay. To when it depends when the government opens up, you know, when Biden reciprocates with our yeah. our, our arrangement. And I believe that we might be able to see you in the papers this weekend as well. This podcast will come out on Monday, so it might be a little too late. But you had an interview uh, yesterday that's going to be in the Daily Mail, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had an interview about the cost of testing um, for my trip to Spain, and that's appearing tomorrow in tomorrow's Mail, I believe. I was in the Independent, the Express, and the Telegraph online this week. Well, that's brilliant, Katie. Good to, yeah. good to speak to you. And yeah. uh, we'll chat again in a couple of weeks' time. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, thanks, Katie, for that. Uh, now, I'm sure, listener, like me, you've been enjoying watching the Tokyo Olympics. It seems a bit strange after a, year, uh, a year-long delay that's the 2020 Olympics, but it does mean there's now less than six months or about six months until the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And the reason I asked uh, Emily and Jasmine to join me today is that both of them have competed professionally uh, and uh, Jasmine still is at the highest level. Um, so let's start off with a little chat about it. Uh, J- Jasmine, what event in the Winter Olympics will you be most looking forward to watching? Hmm. I always enjoy the Alpine for obvious reasons, but also the ski jumping, cross-country skiing, uh, all of it, really. <laughs> Excellent. Cross-country skiing perhaps has the the closest fit with your telemarking events? Uh, well, it's, a combina- it's probably a combination of those three I mentioned, so it's probably why I enjoy watching those. But, yeah, it has the downhill element of alpine, but we have the free hill of ski jumping and cross-country, so it's very much the blend of all of those right okay and emily you represented great britain in the ski across at the uh, winter olympics so i'm going to take a guess will you tell me <laughs> though what is, what event will you be looking forward to watching yeah i mean ski cross is that kind of um yeah adrenaline sport where it's a little bit like the 100 meter sprint where the first one across the finish line wins so you don't really need to know much about it to kind of grasp it as a spectator so, um, yeah, it's always a good one to watch. Um, so I'll be looking forward to that. And obviously all my, comp- like, you know, fellow peers and stuff who I competed with will be in there. So got a lot of friends competing. But also, um, I don't know, I just, 
I love the Olympics because there's so much kind of you get to see on your regular TV screen. So that's why I'm absolutely glued to the screen right now. But um, yeah, I think also I'll be looking forward to see the Brits. And we've got like probably the strongest kind of British team we've ever had taken to a Games. Um, maybe the biggest depth and of talent we've we've had as well. So that'll be really interesting to see where the Brits kind of like, yeah, end up because we're not normally known for those winter sports. But now we've got world champions. We've got people who are regularly run the World Cup podiums like jazz. Obviously, jazz won't be in the Olympics because events not in the Olympics. But um, yeah, there's many kind of like athletes up there who are going to be good in for a medal. So I think that'll be really cool to see that. I mean, you're right. And certainly the ambitions for um, GB snow sports are very high. I did actually get a press release yesterday, which I haven't looked at in so much detail, but they have announced uh, the teams for the free ski and snowboard squads uh, for this winter. And again, you know, there's, as you mentioned, there's a huge amount of uh, uh, talent in there and a lot of people who've picked up uh, medals already. I think the ambition um, from Vicky Gosling who is the CEO of GB Snow Sports, is that they want to have Britain at fifth in the medal table for Alpine sports. And I don't think that's for this Olympic cycle. I think it's for the one after, because you'd need to get, you know, a fairly considerable number of medals. If you think that, um, you know, Jenny Jones was the first ever Alpine medal uh, in Sochi. And then there were two medals, I think I'm right in saying, uh, in the last Olympics. Uh, so I think they probably need to get up to five or something like that to uh, to get um, to get the, the the placing that they're looking for. But that's entirely possible with the uh, with the squad of athletes um, who are there. Uh, Jazz, do you have any, have any views on that? Anyone you're looking out for uh, on the British team? Uh, yeah, like Emily, <clears throat> all of them. You do want to see all of them do well. Actually, I remember you competing, Emily, and it's like it's a really nice feeling to see somebody you know up there representing. And you yeah. look like you had such a good time as well. I remember watching. I think she's. I thought oh, she must be having the best time right now. She just looked yeah. like, like you look like you're loving it. Yeah, I mean, it was such a journey for me to get there, wasn't it? So I think once I actually got there, I was just like, do you know what? Take any pressure off and enjoy this moment. But yeah, yeah I mean... Well, and it just all came... Yeah, it was yeah. great to I watch. think that's the thing, because um, a little bit of a backstory here, uh, Ian, is I actually coached Jazz back when she did Alpine. Um, oh, did you? Right. Skiing back in the day. So kind of the, the, the ski world in the UK, it's so small and... We, I used to train with um, Dave Riding and obviously Laurie Taylor, who's part of the slalom team. He was there with you at that time when you were training, wasn't he, Jazz? Mm -hmm. And um, you, they, and you both, I knew they were both going to do well because they had the same kind of attitude because that's what sport's about. It's not just about being talented. It's about having that back um, mentality to actually push yourself. And um, yeah, so knowing these people and knowing their journey and stuff like that, it's like you, you kind of have that personal experience of them as well when you're watching them on the screen. So, yeah, it'll be a good one. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, the team list now. And I would say, you know, there's so many medal prospects there. Um, on the women's uh, snowboard, Katie Ormerod and, and Mia Brooks, you know, de definite uh, possibilities. And on the uh, in the skiing side of things, I mean, James Woods has always been very close. We have, now have Gus Kenworthy, 
uh, in the team. He's a previous Olympic medal winner is uh, transferred over from the uh, US team. And in terms of the women, well, Izzy Atkin, Zoe Atkin is uh, equally as good. Kirsty Muir, very good chance. Maddie Rowlands. Uh, so there's lots of medal prospects. It's very exciting at yeah. that side of things. I, I interviewed Pat Sharples a few episodes ago. Listener, if you want to look it up, we have a, a ski podcast special interview with Pat Sharples. And the job that he's done there in nurturing uh, and bringing through all of those athletes, many of whom he's known since uh, they were very young kids. You know, he helped uh, them get into that freestyle uh, scene. It's so encouraging. Um, it's such a great setup that they have there, and they have clearly have a very you know close team spirit between them all. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think he was back from the Sheffield days, wasn't he? Yeah, he had the ball trained in there, like um, Woodsy and the the Summer Haze and stuff. So. Yeah, it's it's great to see it, but also wider than that as well. Ian, like we got the uh, the moguls guys on the podium and stuff this year. Yeah. So it's just yeah. kind of like all the different disciplines. And also, I didn't mention it obviously, but in the in the um, ski across uh, in the last world, we we've got um, Charlotte Banks, who is a world champion, and uh, I think that um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name now, Oliver Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Now it. he placed uh, in, on the podium, didn't he? So the he first was fourth. Ever, yeah. Oh, he was fourth. Okay, yeah, so, was... But he was in the final, so that was his major first major big final on the world tour is the world championships and came fourth. And just two days before, Charlotte Banks had just won gold in the snowboard cross. So, yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah, so many, many, many medal prospects uh, out there. Now, thinking about you know an event like that, you know, Jasmine, you've competed on the World Cup circuit and in world championships. When you when you've got a big event coming up. How far out does your preparation for that event start? I mean, I know you're probably always preparing, but if you have a focus on a particular thing, what's your timeline for that? Well, <clears throat> the races are, most of them are between January and March. And my season, in my mind, starts on the 1st of May. So I'll actually backdate and have um, a training program that prepares me to be fit for those three months. And then you have top-up training sessions within the three months that um, sort of sharpen you up, if you like. So obviously it's all specific to different sports, but you're talking about uh, what would normally perhaps be termed periodization from May to January. So you're focusing on different elements through that uh, period, uh, you know, month by month. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So for your uh, uh, discipline, uh, there's is it endurance early on and then fine-tuning speed and skills later um actually I've never had two years the same so I always do something different um depending on whatever we think you know wherever there's a there's a missing link that we perceive if you like so this year for example I'm doing strength and then speed strength and then it will probably go into power and that kind of thing but um it's just wherever there's a there's a missing there's a weak link and we try and deal with that sure that that makes sense and what what about yourself emily then so very specific in the in terms of those olympic uh, cycles you know how far out would your preparation start for that type of thing yeah it's a four year cycle so as soon as you finish one olympics you or you know one olympics has just passed you're preparing for the next one so ultimately, that's the major sporting stage for pretty much most 
athletes if they're sports Olympic sport. So kind of like you're putting the stepping stones and the building blocks in four years out, which kind of feels bizarre. But um, yeah, but when it comes to kind of like a smaller periodization, um, like Jazz just said, kind of on that kind of yearly thing, April, get a little bit downtime, maybe it's a little bit, bit in May. Um, and that's when you can, you can, you know, try for sports and do all sorts of fun stuff. But um, yeah, then it kind of comes into that muscular endurance, like you said, and then building that strength phase into that kind of, leading into that power phase obviously the skill side of things has always got to be kind of like fine-tuned you can't kind of jeopardize that skill whilst you're doing kind of like those other kind of strength phase and stuff like that so it's important to keep that fine-tuned and you but you'll do that when you go out onto your skis majority of this kind of stuff can actually happen back in the UK so we can and we've got amazing facilities in the UK as well and I think that's probably one of the reasons why the UK team can kind of be up there matching with those people who've got snow in their back, you know, in their playground, in their backyard, because we've got this amazing sports science facilities and knowledge within the UK, which can kind of bring that level of our performance up. So, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely one long, long cycle of four years. So when kind of like things like injuries come in in year two, you're kind of like restructuring that cycle to kind of make sure you can get out of it. But bizarre that the summer guys had a five-year cycle because that you kind of really are ready to kind of peak towards that four-year. Um, so for some of those guys, it would have been difficult to kind of continue that on for another year, especially if they're an older athlete and stuff when you're managing injuries but also would have helped a lot of people out who were maybe injured last year who were going to miss the games and that gives them another 12 months to kind of get themselves back and ready to to compete ready for 21 for their 2020 olympics yeah for sure i mean it must have been you know so difficult for uh, the athletes for this olympics not really knowing whether or not it's going to uh, go ahead i mean both of you have mentioned the fitness side of things and the skills side of things but one of the, it strikes me that for any event, but particularly at the highest level, it's the mental attitude that you take into it, the psychological side of uh, things. And, and Jazz, I wondered how you deal with that. Do you have a coach for that side of things as well? Or do you deal with that yourself? Do you go through, you know, positive <laughs> mental visualization prior to events? Uh, yeah, all of that. I actually, yeah, I do work with somebody through the University of Suffolk, Manos Georgidis. He's Greek, but he's been working with me for a number of years. And yeah, Emily will tell you when I was a teenager, I was very, I had my heart set on on being the best in skiing. And with that, I think you put lots of different sorts of pressure on yourself as well. It's hard enough being teenager and just a human actually but hmm. you know with everything else on top that it can get to you at times I think it's important to have um, a strategy or a process that you can fall back on when you're not having a good day it's all of that um, but you never I, I don't know about you Emily but I've never had two races exactly the same you have elements that you know work for you and a kind of yeah, it's like it's like a, an, a blend of ingredients that you know okay I'm, I'm onto a good one here or I'm not onto a good one I'm not feeling confident but you have to perform anyway so it's always changing and it's really difficult I, I'd say that is the most difficult 
part. So, so, so if, for example, you know, you're saying you work on on visualization, uh, etc. But then I guess when you get to the start line, there's so many variables in the course of any particular race, which might be from the weather or maybe how the course is set up or who particularly arrives on that day that can affect those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like sometimes visualization works perfectly and other times you have a really good run and you didn't visualize anything. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the visualization for an athlete is something you can control. And as athletes, we control the controllables and that's what always get banged into us you can only control the controllables and um so visualization is one of those ones you can box off you can deal with what you can't deal with is the deeper um gremlins or whatever they are which are kind of like you know inside which you don't know where, when they're going to pop out and that's when you kind of got to build those strategies what jazz works on with her kind of mental coach to kind of be able to overcome so they don't jeopardize your performance but i mean as an athlete, you're constantly daily working on your mental approach. Once you get a little bit as an older athlete as well, it's those kind of outdoor kind of, um, you know, your friends have maybe just bought a new house or they've just had promotion at work. And, and you sit there and you kind of battle with these things going, oh, should I be doing that too? You know, yeah. at, at that age, should I, uh, what am I doing skiing? I should be doing. So it's not even the pressures you get on from your particular sport. It's the pressures from everyday life, which you kind of got to, to work out as well. And where am I going to get the next um, pay, paycheck to be able to get to that flight, to that competition? And that's always something as a British athlete, which is an additional stress, which, um, sorry, a British winter athlete, which is an additional stress, which some of our peers maybe don't have because they've got a more structured funding program and stuff. It's really great to see now that things like Ellie Suter Foundation and things like that are in place to support athletes um, a little bit more to relieve those pressures. Um, an elite athlete is not someone who's just talented at sport. It's someone who's got the mental capacity to be able to push themselves daily and find strategies to overcome that. And I think that's what makes ultimately um, the top athletes. For sure. And I think, uh, you know, mentioned the Ellie Suter Foundation. I'll, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But that is a foundation uh, set up to, let's say, help athletes who might be dealing with depression or something like that. And you talk about the individual challenges people face, you know, watching these uh, Summer Olympics. I think uh, everybody's probably been aware of Simone Biles, one of the strongest favourites ever to win medals. So even even she has felt the pressure to an extent. And, you know, outside of the Olympics, Ben Stokes at the moment, I believe, uh, you know, is needing to, to take some time. And how, you know, being able to control all of those pressures, including what you're saying, those that are completely outside the sporting environment, you know, maybe you're having to think about what perhaps social media you know is more of a factor uh, these days uh, from what you've said i think maybe you might have read the uh, chimp paradox by steve peters and i think steve peters was very involved with lots of british teams but particularly the cycling team i think in terms of you know improving or trying to get them to focus uh, their their mind to get that psychological preparation right and the the kind of idea behind it um is that you said that you have these little trigger points within you that keep coming out and being able to recognize it and get on top of it, you know, whatever it might be that can happen. You know, I um, compete 
on a completely different level, but a kind of age group level in triathlon and running. And the classic example would be, for example, if you if you get a puncture or there's some problem, you can't get your wetsuit off quickly enough. And suddenly all these ideas in your mind explode and it, you just need to put those behind you. Like you were saying, you know, what can you control? You know, you can't control that. Focus on the controllables. Give out this this um, Winter Olympics then. You know, it's going to be in Beijing. Pat Sharple has mentioned to me the fact that it's going to be art, primarily artificial snow in artificial resorts. They haven't been able to go and do test events because of COVID. You know, Emily, how much difference do you think that will make not having been able to go out there in advance? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, in downhill skiing, we're doing a, a gravity-based sport. So our equipment is just as important sometimes as our, our, our skill base. Um, so having the right, wax, the right wax preparations on your skis is so important and not going and feeling those conditions beforehand will be really difficult for kind of that, the, the technicians who prepare all the skis, but also as a mental ability to not seeing the course. In ski cross, for instance, all our courses, are, um, they're very different and um, they might be more suited and you know, might be, need to be more of a glider or someone who can cope with big jumps and stuff like that. And normally we always on an Olympics get a test event where we get to kind of go and have a look. It'll not be the exact like for like course, but it'll be that general kind of build. So we'll get to see the obstacle course as, <laughs> as per se, um, probably a year before. So you kind of then start to build and then summer preparations um, will start to kind of, will build these kind of elements, kind of what we saw in, the, in Europe and practice them. Now, this is a good thing for the Brits because back in 2018, we didn't, there was a big start feature in Pyeongchang, which no one had ever really seen before. It was a drop start, um, Wu-Tang uh, up and over, and it was really quite vertical. So it was very, very technical. Now, the Swiss, the Austrians, um, all these big European teams were able to go and build the like for like on their own snow. Now, we didn't have access to that, so it always put us a little bit kind of like behind. I managed to kind of make friends with a few people and jump in every now and then <laughs> on a couple of them. But this probably, in a way, helps us out. We're all in the same starting line when yeah. you go there. But, yeah, no, it's, it's really difficult. But the good thing is maybe it puts everyone in the same boat. I remember the uh, the the Wu Tang right at the start of the course in Pyeongchang. It was absolutely massive, wasn't it? It was almost like going uphill to start off with before you yeah. could start the race, right? You're yeah. jumping from kind of like the height of a, a double story building, free falling down to level one, then have to ride the back of that and then go up the other side of a two story building to get over the side. Yeah. So where you hit that kind of landing point and get the momentum like a swing to kind of get up and over was kind of quite crucial. Jasmine, can I ask you a question then? You've actually been competing this winter. You know, th they've obviously been COVID pro protocols in place for all of your races. Has that affected things much? Has it made it more difficult, put extra pressures on you for competing? Not really. No, it was quite organised. We had <clears throat> we had to test, of course, um, before leaving when we arrived. But uh, we only lost two locations due to um you know changing arrangements with covid but one was replaced so in the end it was just one one event we lost um and we actually had just as many days well nearly just as many days racing because 
they'd add extra days in the same location. Um, so it's, we okay, very... so apart from the fact that you had to be tested, you know, they, they, uh, more regularly, it wasn't uh, a particular obstacle in terms of your competition, uh, uh, in terms of how your competition is concerned. No, no, the competition was was just as normal, except a mask until the very last minute, and then a mask as yeah. you finish. Um, but apart from that, yeah, well, we, we see that in the in this uh, Summer Olympics uh, as well. Uh, and you know the summer olympics have seen um you know new sports such as surfing and skateboarding have you guys been watching the skateboarding i saw some of that yeah. this morning it was brilliant <laughs> it's, un it's unreal and and like they're doing such a good job at commentating on it as well yeah edley and tim Woolwood, isn't it edley's yeah. uh, doing a lot i saw him he was doing the climbing as well yeah he's uh he's uh getting some good work from that and um, thinking about the winter olympics i i uh read that ski mountaineering is going to be included in the winter uh olympics um would you guys watch that ski mountaineering yeah, I I think I would. I think it'd be quite exciting. I mean, those guys, it's very popular in Courchevel. They, they're essentially running up the piste, but running. For me, I'm more of like, you know, short, sharp athlete. So I like it to be fast. So as long yeah. as it wasn't too long, longer in the event. Well, it's it's shocking how fast they can be. You talk about Courchevel. During the winter, they have a, a ski touring race. It starts down in La Pra and goes up to uh, 1850. And I've done that several times now. I'm a bit more experienced at ski touring now than I was. But, oh, my God, I could not believe how fast some people were doing it. I was such an amateur, and I don't know, I was just trying to get my skis on and this and that. And as you say, they're practically running up the piste. What, what about you, Jasmine? I, I bet you do a lot of ski touring. I could see a crossover with uh, with what you do just now. Would you be uh, in, interested in, in watching it, taking part in it? Watching, yes. Um, but like Emily, taking part, not not really. I like to go at my own pace with that and enjoy the view. That's more like a day off activity. I don't want to be. Ski mountaineering or ski touring, you know, has become more and more popular. Ski mountaineering is the kind of race element of it. Probably the most famous pure ski mountaineering race is the Patrie de Glacier. Uh, a long time ago in the podcast, I spoke to Philippa Middleton, who took part in that several years ago. Uh, it's a team event. But I was in Zermatt last month. I spoke to uh, Martin Antematen, who is actually a previous winner of that event. So let's have a listen to uh, what he said. So I'm here in Zermatt today in a lovely cafe. Sadly, it's raining a little bit outside, but I'm with Martin Antematen. Hi, Martin. Uh, wie geht's? Hey, Martin. Hey, thanks. Yes, I'm fine. Uh... I have a good day. It was running today in the rain, but it was it was nice. Yeah, I was running in, in the rain as well and in the snow at some points. We might come back to trail running, but firstly, you know, I was really interested to talk to you. I mean, you, you, you're a trail runner, you're a ski mountaineer, and we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the ski mountaineering races that you've done. The one that I think a lot of our listeners will have heard of is the Patrie de, de Glacier. Quite a few years ago, I, I interviewed um, Philippa Middleton, the, uh, the sister of uh, Kate Middleton, who did that event. Now, she did it and did a lot of training for it, but I think you've actually won that race before, haven't you? Yes, uh, the Patrick Glacier for me is a really special race. Uh, when I was young, I see always the people who do the race from Soma to Verbier, and I, that, 
I'm not understand uh, how we can go from here to Verbi over the glacier and uh, then for me it was really a big motivation to do this race and uh, when I do this race I see the fast people and then uh, it was really a motivation to be fast in the mountains and four years later uh, I win the Patrouille de Glacier and uh, yes I'm really happy about this. And just to clarify then you said you know it's a race that goes from Zermatt to Verbier but it obviously goes through the mountains and typically I think it starts like at two in the morning or something like that is that right? Yes it's in, it's, you, will, you, will, you will start in the night and uh, the darkness and in the winter you have snow it's coldness it's not so easy. Yeah not so easy but for you, and you also to clarify as well, you do it in teams of three people? Yes, uh, the Patro de Glacier, you go over the glacier, uh, you have to be on the rope with three people together and you know it's uh, really a team race. You have to start uh, with these two friends and you have uh, to go to Erbia all together and yes, it's uh, really a big challenge. So when you did it and you, you won it, um, how, what was your time? How long did it take you to do that race? I winning in uh, 5 hours 52, uh, it was a new track record uh, in 2010 and yes, it was uh, the first time uh, people on Sunday uh, 6 hours and uh, yes, the condition was really fine and we can ski really a lot, not so, not so a lot uh, in the foot part and yes, it was the perfect day. Excellent, congratulations uh, on that. What about um, the other, your, your teammates? How, how did you choose those or were they chosen for you? Yes, uh, in the ski mountaineering, uh, we are have uh, the Swiss team, it's the Swiss national team and it's always the same. Uh, the best three people uh, goes on the first team and you will run for the win. And, uh, you have to accept this and the motivation, but it's really high all the season for to be in the best team. Excellent. And another race you were telling me about, which uh, listeners will be able to relate to, is one out in the Dolomites, the uh, Celeronda uh, ski marathon. And and that that one sounds fascinating as well. How long was that, and uh, which resorts does it go through? Yes, it's really in the in the in the Salaronda group, and you have big uh, ski area there, and you go over the over the ski slopes uh, in the in the big passes. And uh, one uh, one village is I cannot say. The second is uh, Wolkenstein, and uh, then uh, you have Araba on, on the other side, and. Uh, it's, all, it's uh, also a fourth one and uh, the, spe the special thing on this race, uh, every year the start and the finish line is uh, in another village, but the track is always the same. Okay, so it's rotating from one resort to the next yes, uh, yes. year by year. Okay, and that, and that one is a 45 kilometer race with, with a, maybe, I've no, put it down here in my notes, two and a half thousand meters of climbing, is that right? Yes, it's a, it's a marathon, it's a 45 kilometers and uh, you have to do uh, 2,500 meters in altitude and uh, it's, all, it's always special, you, you are start uh, the, in the evening uh, with the headlamps and then you go into the night and uh, it's a big race with uh, a lot of pe people and it's really interesting. Yeah, and how long would that race take then? Uh, we took uh, below three hours. Uh, I win in this time, and it was also uh, a new record. Uh, yes, you're really fast on the slopes uh, in the downhill, but you are always pushing the uphills. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. 
Well, so ski mountaineering, or, you know, is one aspect of what you do, but you're also a trail runner, which I'm interested in. The reason I'm here in Switzerland at the moment is because I've been doing some trail running and practicing. And on Tuesday, I ran the Sierzi uh, Now. When I say ran it, you know, I obviously walked uh, a lot of it. Um, it took me about five and a half hours. I mean, there weren't any other runners around. There were no aid stations, and I lost my way a couple of times. But you've done that Sierzi Now race, and that attracts some of the uh, the best trail runners in the world, like Kilian uh, uh, Journey, I think, is a, is a record holder there. But you've got a pretty good time on that. You've, you've done it eight times now, is that right? Yes, uh, in Sierzi Now, I was uh, a lot of time. <coughs> Under uh, the 10 best uh, trail runners. But I think Sierra Signal is really important. Uh, you have always the same track, and it's important uh, you look on the time. My, uh, my goal was to run uh, one time under 240, and yes, uh, one time I do 139, and I'm really happy with this. And yes, Sierra Signal is uh, one hour from, from me. And uh, for me, it's always a big motivation to run there with, 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 with the best ones from, from over the world. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah, well, to put that in context, you're doing it in 2.39 and uh, my kind of a non-official time was about 5.39 or something like that when I did it the, uh, the other day. But um, I still was able to do it. Now here we're in Zermatt. A couple of weeks ago, we had the uh, Zermatt Marathon here. But coming up in August, we have a race called the Matterhorn Ultrax, and that's a race that you've helped to create, I think, is that right? Yes, it's uh, the Matterhorn Ultrax is really a special trail race. Uh, we have the start and finish line here in Zermatt, and we have uh, five different races. We have uh, three normal trail races over 20 till 50 kilometers. We have a vertical race. It's only an uphill race, and then we have the, spe uh, the special race, the Ultrax Extreme. He tells Extreme, uh, but it's uh, 25 kilometers with 3,000 meters up and down, and it's really a technical race with scrambling, with glacier traversing. It's uh, yeah, it's not easy uh, to run this. Uh, this race but it's really nice uh, I can tell from, from the vertical that I've been doing you know, that is you know very steep I often when I look at different races around the world I kind of you know calculate how much vertical there is per 10 kilometers to get you know a feel for how much uh, steepness there is and if you talk about 3,000 over 23 that is just immense I mean I think the most I've done was uh, a 700 for every 10k race so now that, that's double that so it really is serious that's brilliant Martin thanks very much for your time and best of luck with the event next month thanks for you so martin mentioned the Matterhorn ultrax uh, which is one of the many trail events in the alps and uh, just after i spoke to him i went over and took part in a race called the eiger trail which is uh, based in uh, grindelwald it was a, a great event really enjoyed it 51k 33,100 meters of uh, vertical there's so many uh, trail running events in the mountains now. Pretty much every resort has their own race uh, in the summer. Regular listeners will know that in about three weeks' time, in fact, literally three weeks today, uh, I'll be taking part in the UTMB, which is uh, like a massive challenge. It's 171 kilometers, uh, nine and a half, 10,000 meters of vertical. I actually was running through Les Uches last week, uh, Jasmine, on there, which is the early part of the course. Uh, I covered it in, in four days, fast packing it. 
Uh, but really hard to get my head around uh, doing the whole thing in one go. So, listener, uh, you'll find out how I do in our next episode, which will be in September, or you can follow me on uh, uh, Twitter, at Skipedia, to find out. That um, recce that I did um, was very good, even though I did it over four days. You know, I've done the whole course, I've seen the whole thing, I know the different peaks. The, the issue is the time you know, going into, I've done a few 24 hour races before, but for me, this will take me, you know, 40, 42, 44 hours. So you go through two nights. So what will happen and what will happen when I get into that second night, you know, without sleep. And also, as you know, in the Alps, you can get all sorts of weather. If the weather's okay. Great. If you get one of the thunderstorms, etc., cetera, uh, then it could be uh, more difficult. But, so how um, much kit do you have with you, Ian, when you do that? Uh, there is a list of compulsory kit uh, that you have to have uh, on you. Mm-hmm. So apart from, I guess, your regular running stuff, you have to have um, some leggings, uh, waterproof trousers, uh, a an underlayer. They give you um, specific guidelines for how thick or how heavy they have to weigh. Oh, wow. um, a waterproof jacket, a hat, gloves, waterproof and windproof gloves, um, and then a few things like an emergency blanket, a whistle, uh, like a bandage, um, and a bit of you have to have a certain amount of uh, calories that you're carrying with you and your phone, etc. So okay. um, the pack will probably weigh about, excluding water, about three kilos. Really? That's really light. You have like, yeah. I don't know, 10 kilos. In your... So where do you camp? Well, you don't. You, you keep don't. Going. You just, yeah, I mean, there it. are aid stations. So if you if you decided that you wanted to sleep, you can uh, sleep. Uh, you know, you can lie down on a bed for a while if you want to. That's um, um, that's going to send you to some um, interesting places. Well, apparently hallucinations are quite common in the, uh, yeah. in the second night. I spoke to someone uh, just recently. He said that they saw a centaur with the head of George Michael. <laughs> you know it's that it's that last element which is the um you know the bit that i don't know uh what will happen but i'm quite well prepared for it so yeah. you know if if i get a fair wind and the weather is okay um finishing you know is winning uh so to speak yeah. in that yeah. kind of race i'm not killian journey i just want to yeah. you know get over the line so we'll see how it goes uh, I'd just like to thank Johnny Goldsborough. Uh, he said, enjoyed hearing Jim back on the podcast and good to hear a bit of trail running news. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Johnny and Chris Rose. Love the show. Keep up the excellent work. And thanks for both of uh, those two for buying me a coffee. Uh, if you enjoy listening to the ski podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ski podcast. All cuppers appreciated. And please do email the ski podcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions or suggestions for items that you'd like to listen to uh, on the show and now coming up in our next episode well i'll be reviewing the utmb we're going to be talking about the birmingham ski show which is coming up at the end of october a little chat about uh, sustainability uh, as well and what are else uh, crops up between uh, now and then and uh, jasmine like thank you for joining us thank you and Emily uh, as well. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And thanks again, listener. And we'll uh, we'll you can listen to us again next time. <laughs>